That's low. Can't do that. All right. Good morning, everybody. Thanks, band, and and good morning to the rest of you. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks again for uh, coming today. If it's your first Sunday here, uh, I want to especially welcome you, as I think Emily did earlier. Um, I'm one of the pastors, as I said before, along with Spencer, who's not here today. He's on vacation. Uh, be back next week, I I believe. So. Uh, we are in Genesis right now as a, as a church, preaching through the whole book, which will take us through December uh, before Christmas, and um, found out we can't take a break or else we'll have like one sermon in, you know, uh, January 10th or something like that, which is be kind of like, we're almost there, it'd be kind of lame to have a, a break for the holidays and then uh, one more sermon, so it's going to be kind of neat to finish up right before the holidays, so it's our goal, so we'll be plowing right through maybe a break in September for something vision-related, but um, for the most part, we'll be in Genesis every Sunday, uh, all, the way through, uh, all the way through Christmas. And so if you want to turn your Bibles to the very beginning, uh, if you don't know the Bible that well yet, that's totally fine. We don't, we don't presume knowledge here necessarily. Uh, it's the first book of the, uh, the Bible, so easy to find. Or if you have a device, go ahead and turn to Genesis 17. We'll look at uh, pretty much the whole chapter today. Actually, we will look at the whole chapter, but won't read every word for the sake of time. Uh, thematically, we're looking at the theme of circumcision today. And so I'll define that here in uh, just a minute. But to catch you up to speed, if you are uh, brand new uh, to the Bible or to Hiawatha or just haven't read Genesis maybe uh, in, in years or otherwise just kind of not that familiar with it, basically in a nutshell, and we're way past the time, as a lot of you know, that we can summarize the whole thing. Uh, we're in chapter 17. So this is a crude uh, summary. But uh, after sin, after God makes everything and sin comes into the world, and we've defined sin, remember, very holistically. And I encourage you guys to do the same when you talk about sin biblically or just with others uh, yourself, sin is not just doing bad things. Uh, of course, it, symptomatically it looks like that. Uh, it, it is early on in Genesis we see murder occur. We see adultery. Uh, we see idolatry. We see all kinds of deceitfulness and lying and things like that. It is all of that. Those are things that bring offense to God and harm to ourselves and others. So sin and curse and fallenness and things like that can be summarized uh, accordingly, but it's more than that. In fact, when sin comes into the world, it's not murder, it's not adultery, it's not lying, it's not things that we might more easily label sin, it's simply people going their own way and saying, God, I don't need you, I'm going to follow Satan instead, or at least this ideology, this worldview that says I'm uh, more good than evil and I'm capable, I'm, I'm I'm able to do it, I'm able to cross the river, cross the ocean, climb the mountain, and to prove it, I'm going to be good without you. That's ultimately what sin is. It's actually in the very beginning when Adam and Eve rebel and go their own way, they're reaching for things that we might actually call good. They're reaching for morality without God. And so there is a way to be a godless moralist. And, that, and that's actually the headwaters of sin. That's how, how it begins in Genesis 3, striving for goodness without God. And from there, symptomatically, the rivers that flow from those headwaters are things like murder and chaos and disorder and adultery and and lying, and even things like natural disasters, and sickness, and ultimately death. And, and so when I say sin comes into the world, when we say that, when we, when we summarize Genesis or just talk about sin, we've got to think about it very comprehensively. It's, it's all those things and, and more. And so after that occurs in Genesis chapter 3, uh, we see a lot of fallenness take place between chapters 4 and 11. In chapter 12, something really significant occurs, and we've been talking about this for the past few weeks God makes promises to humanity, uh, kind of between chapters 4 and 11 on, on a broader scale. Actually, in chapter 3, he promises to undo this curse and sin on a, on a broad scale level, promising Christ ahead of time. But in chapter 12, he kind of hones in 
and gets specific with a family. And so things are pretty cosmic and big picture before this, but the rest of Genesis between chapters 12 and 50 are about a family, the life and times of a family uh, named, uh, well, it's Abram's family, a man named Abram and his, and his posterity or his kin. And so God covenants, he calls this man by grace who's not a good guy, he's worshiping other gods, he calls him away from his homeland, his idolatry, and, and promises things to him, things like land and blessing and, and most of all, offspring. And we, we quickly found out, in, even right in Genesis, this becomes a lot more clear later in the Bible, that he's not just promising literal offspring, he's promising spiritual offspring. And he, God is promising to undo the curse through him. And so he's saying, very committed to his creation, he's saying, I'm not just going to bring just directly from my hand and snap my fingers and make it occur blessing amidst a curse world but I'm going to bring it through people. I'm going to bring it through this family. And what happens to this family, how God covenants, how he makes promises to, how he works uh, towards them, his posture towards them, all of that resembles the way he's going to work later in the story through his son, Jesus Christ. So it's typical. Uh, even the covenant itself, you know, when, when God says, I'm going to give you offspring uh, to Abram, later in the New Testament, it's clear that, and this is how Paul the Apostle uh, theologizes about that statement, he says the ultimate offspring of Abram is Jesus Christ. And so we can't get confused about, well, it's just this broad family God's going to bring physically. It's actually a spiritual idea. God's going to bring blessing through the ultimate, capital O, offspring of Abram, who is Jesus Christ. That's going to be the, the means by his son, God's son, the means by which he undoes all that humanity brought into the world and did in Genesis 3 and, and beyond in rebelling from him. And so and through that, then, the church would come. So through that, an offspring like us. And so we, we've, as we've been saying in this series, all of us who believe the gospel, who believe that Jesus died for our sins, are children of Abram. We're, we're, the, we're the final, in a sense, we're kind of the finish line of that promise. We're the church, the New Testament church is the finish line. Uh, people who live by faith. Uh, we're not, most of us aren't Jews in the room. It uh, doesn't matter, the Bible says. We're actually, it's, it, he goes beyond the ethnic, beyond the bloodline, to all those who have faith like Abram did when he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. So again, this is basically a big picture thing, kind of giving you uh, the cliff notes in terms of what happens later throughout Genesis and beyond. But in the meantime, as I've been saying, and we'll see this today, Abram's story, his life and times, become an emblem of Christ or other New Testament realities ahead of time. And so the way God covenants or makes a relationship with him uh, becomes uh, indicative or a whisper of, uh, typical, of how God will keep covenanting with Abram's family later in the story and ultimately through, uh, to us through his son Jesus Christ, which we call the New Covenant or the New Testament. And so things we see happen here in Genesis 17 today, these, these covenantal promises and stipulations and things God is asking of Abraham, uh, things he's saying, these are markers of what it means to be a person of God. They become this, this whisper, this glimpse of what's going to happen later in the story through, uh, through Jesus Christ, uh, the ultimate covenant, like I've been saying, the better covenant that God will make through Jesus Christ and him crucified uh, towards all of us. So that's where it starts to take on a lot of meaning. So we'll get there. So what I want to do today is break down this covenant. And so remember in Genesis, these past, really since Genesis 12, but Genesis 15 is a big marker. And today as well, when he talks about circumcision, I want to talk about two aspects of this covenant God is making with Abram. 
And again, here, I'm actually way behind. Thank you, uh, Tyler, for, you got to bear with me. This is like my second Sunday with the clicker, so um, I'm going to be like six slides behind. Tyler, you should just do it because I'm going to uh, have a hard time here, but I'll, I'll do my best. So two aspects of the covenant that God makes with Abram that, as I've been saying, points us ahead to the ultimate covenant he makes with us through Jesus. And the two aspects are circumcision, and then kind of, hey, that's the main thing today, but hanging off of that inclusion and a type of surprising inclusion of unexpected people into that covenant uh, as, as well. Both of these things as they anticipate uh, Jesus Christ. And so, so let's read Genesis 17, 1 to 14 today. Well, uh, actually, we have a few verses after that, too, at the end of the chapter, which I'll come back to. But let's start with the first 14 verses. If you want to follow along on screen, that'd be great, or in your uh, Bibles or, or devices. All right, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken uh, my covenants. A little behind there, sorry about that. Okay, so let's talk about circumcision here. We'll talk about this definitionally and the purpose, uh, the purpose of this first and maybe definitionally and then finally uh, theologically. So uh, circumcision, maybe as you gleaned here, uh, was a sign of being in covenant with God. It was a rite of sorts, uh, for men at least, that they would be circumcised on the eighth day, or in, in today's passage's case, even as adults. So it actually says in, in the passage, the part of the passage we're reading just here, in here a little bit, Ishmael, Abraham's uh, son at this point, was 13. Abram was much older. And they were circumcised, and all the adults at this point uh, were circumcised at a much later, later a time. But it was a sign of being a person of God. So just think about it that way. If it's, if it's just a strange thing, and it should be kind of strange at this point, if you're reading the Bible cover to cover, kind of a strange uh, right, a strange thing for God to ask at this point, a strange thing to say this is what it means to be a person of God, what it means to be marked as, uh, as one, of my, one of my people. Uh, think about it just in terms of those terms. It, it was a sign of being a person of God and being in covenant with, uh, with him. So, so again, as I was saying, at this point in the story, it's just strange, right? And that's, and that's okay. There's a lot of weird things in Genesis at the first part. Actually, you could say it's about almost 
uh, all of the Old Testament that there are strange things that find clarity in Christ later. There's fogginess that gets blown away by Jesus and the cross later in the story. We're just not there yet. We're going to get there. Uh, but at this point, if this is all you know about the Bible, it's like, well, why? <laughs> right? Uh, why circumcision? Why not a tattoo or a cool t-shirt, you know, or something? Like, well, what's, wh- why circumcision? And there's not a lot of answers here other than because God said so. This is just what he wants. But we start to get some answer, though, and we think through exactly what circumcision is definitionally, which is, and the, and the, it, the, the passage said this, but in case you missed it, uh, it's a literal removal of the foreskin of the flesh of a male. And, uh, and what that thematically points to elsewhere in the Bible. So think about it definitionally and think about it thematically. We, we've done this already in Genesis. Remember, though, that there are, and, and this is the way God loves to work, he, he loves to move from physical pictures to spiritual realities. Uh, that, that is, uh, there's a lot of things I could say to you today about, if you're brand new to the Bible, about how to read it about how to blow at that fog of confusion, but this is one of the best things you can understand. It's a very simple concept, but it's not always easily applied. But if you know this, you'll understand quite a bit, that there are physical things that point to spiritual realities that surpass those things that's kind of started the whole thing. And so physical things that, that get bigger, small things that get big, whispers that turn into shouts. That's how the Bible is laid out. And so if we understand that kind of paradigm, that basic paradigm, uh, it's easier to understand some of these things that make us scratch our heads and say, what in the world is, is going on? So, so if we apply that grid or that interpretational approach to the theme, the theology, the idea of circumcision, with the New Testament's help, this is what we see. Physical Old Testament circumcision points to a spiritual circumcision of the heart as the true mark of being in covenant with God. So a few places we see this, and I'll just give us a buggy ride here through uh, the Bible. But even in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy 10.16, so even in the Old Testament, this idea, God starts to build on this idea. So this is even before we get to uh, the New Testament. God says to Israel, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. So, so think about this. If you're an Israelite in the Old Testament, you're circumcising your sons on the eighth day. And in the context of that, God is saying to, to everybody, male and female, circumcise your hearts. That's really what I want. Be no longer stubborn. And so the former pointed to, even in that context, uh, the greater thing. But kind of condemning, you know, it, it, in one sense. If you're hearing this, you might be thinking, well, I can circumcise my son, but how do I circumcise my heart? How does one really do that? And if God puts stubbornness, kind of plasters stubbornness across the idea of an uncircumcised heart, you know, I can't not be stubborn. You know, we might, we might say that about ourselves, or if you're honest, an Israelite might be saying that, well, what, what about us? If stubbornness, so this is not murder and adultery and terrorism, this is stubbornness. <laughs> you ever try not to be stubborn? I mean, I just, I'm just, I'm a stubborn guy. We're all stubborn you know, to, to a degree, we're kind of full of ourselves and we're stubborn. And so this, there's some condemnation here. If, if we ask, if God says this and we might ask how, there's a bit of a question mark because how, really, how do you really un, or sorry, circumcise uh, your heart? The answers come later. Well, let's go to the New Testament now, Romans 2.29. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church. 
He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the law or the letter. This praise is not from man, but from God. So Romans 2.29, a Jew is, is actually one inwardly. To be, in other words, a person of God, to be Jewish, is actually not an ethnic thing at all. To be an Israelite is actually not an ethnic thing. There's something to that in an Old Testament sense, but now in this new covenant, this new testament, this new era we're in post-cross, to actually be a person of God, i.e. a Jew, is to be one of the heart, inwardly to live by faith. This was actually true in Old Testament times. We don't have time to really unpack that today, but this was true then too. It's especially true now in this New Testament era. But he adds circumcision here. So to be marked as a person of God, ethnically as a Jew, but also physically circumcised as well on the eighth day, all that's been surpassed now by heart matters. And so now a Gentile, a non-Jew who's not circumcised, is actually more of a person of God than a Jew who is circumcised who doesn't live by faith in God or doesn't live by faith specifically in Christ and him crucified. So things change. Colossians 2.11, speaking again to the church in the New Testament, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So again, we see here that there, there is no more physical circumcision in the New Testament. This is the way the Bible talks now the, the, in the New Testament era. It talks about circumcision in spiritual terms. There has been a covenantal shift, in other words, in Christ. And in its place now, we don't have this call to be physically circumcised. We have this call to be saved, to be saved from your sins, to have the, the, the flesh of your heart, which can be... Uh, linked up with sin, the idea of sin and the fleshliness of our sinful hearts removed. So, so the shift has moved from physical circumcision to this idea of spiritual circumcision, which again is salvation. So try to link those words together. It's, there's a lot of layers to it, and it gets more complex, so hold on tight here. So actually, and actually one of the bigger theological issues here too, before we come back to some of this, in uh, the early church, facing the early church, and a lot of New Testament's given over to addressing this issue in letter form, uh, consisted of Jewish Christians, and maybe just Jews as well in some, in some instances, but Jewish Christians missing all of this. Uh, Jewish Christians missing the point, the, the, the trajectory, the movements from the former to the latter, and requiring Gentile Christians to be circumcised physically in addition to their faith. So if, if you weren't aware of this, or just be reminded if you are, a lot of the New Testament's given over to this idea. Like Jesus is good, he's important, he's actually necessary, but what you also need is to kind of, to kind of become Jewish as well, say, saying this to non-Jewish Christians. You're not actually in if you're not marked as a person of God in a physical way. And so Paul specifically writes to more than one church. Galatians is probably the best example. If you want to go read that sometime or talk to me more about it, be happy to. Um, is one of the, the big contextual letters given over to that. But Paul's response, just spanning a few of his letters here, to give you the, uh, give you the big idea, is in Philippians 3.3. 3, uh, Paul says this to Jewish and Gentile Christians. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, flesh meaning ourselves or works, 
or things that we do. We put no confidence in those things. That's what makes us circumcised. So it's interesting here, he actually starts to define what it means to be truly circumcised. What does it mean to be the circumcision? It's, and actually, it's really cool, too. He's not just saying, he's not saying be circumcised here. He's saying you are if you believe the gospel. If you're in Christ, you are a spiritually circumcised individual. But he explains what that is after the comma there, that last clause. This is what it means to be the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in what Christ Jesus has done for us on the cross and who put no confidence in good works. So if you want to be a circumcised, spiritually speaking, Christian, put no confidence in what you do before God. Put no confidence in the flesh. Like the old system, remove the flesh of the foreskin physically from boys on the eighth day. We remove flesh. We remove the call to be good as if we can do that before a holy God on our own. We, we put away the idea that we can climb the ladder. We put away flesh we put away works without God. We put away our self-perceived goodness. And we glory in Christ Jesus. We glory in what he's done for us. If you want to be circumcised, spiritually speaking, and you have to be to be saved, this is what it means to be in covenant with God. Glimpse of this in Genesis 17. This is the reality now. We have to glory in the fact that Christ has died for us and we have done nothing to earn it. That's what it means to not put confidence in the flesh, but confidence in Christ. Okay, we'll come back to that. Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision, counts, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. But here's what counts, a new creation. And then Colossians 2 again, coming back to this passage, 13 to 15. And you who are dead in your trespasses, and then he, he calls this uncircumcision, you're, you who are dead in your sins... In other words, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All right, so what does this mean for, for us New Testament Christians? Uh, Colossians 2 tells us, uh, it, it, it is, like I said before, not so much to be circumcised. You actually don't see that language used in the New Testament. Be circumcised to be in covenant with God. Wouldn't always be wrong to say that. You just got to put an asterisk by it and qualify what you mean. But what you do see a lot stated, and we looked at a few of these verses, is you, if you believe in Jesus, you are circumcised. And it, but it's a particular type of circumcision. It's different than what happened in Genesis 17 because back there, it was done with hands. It was done by men to themselves or another man or to a man and a woman to their sons when they were born on the eighth day. It was done by hands. The circumcision we have now is done without hands. In other words, by God. Not by us. Not by works. Not by law. Not by the letter. Not by effort. But completely and wholly from God alone. He does it not us, by one who made us alive, according to, according to this passage. It's what actually what makes New Testament circumcision better. And, and so a lot of times, um, before I get to this chart here, a couple of things you got to remember when you compare things across the Testaments in the Bible is a lot of times there's comparisons and contrasts. There's similarities between the two things, the, 
the shadow and the reality, but there's also marked differences. And that's, that's true here as well. It's where it actually gets kind of complex. Is there's a lot of similarities between the two. We've talked about that, but also a lot of, of differences. In the former, the former time, the former era, it was physical. It was of the flesh. It was for some. It was by the law, done by hands. But now it's spiritual of the heart. It's for all. It's by the spirit. And it's done without hands uh, by, by God. And so again, the statement, if this is true on the right side, then of course Paul is not going to say, you know, be circumcised primarily, but he'll say you are. He'll say believe the gospel and that's been done to you. And, and even, you know, to mix the metaphor here a little bit and make this even more confusing, uh, is it, actually you could say that about the Old Testament as well, the old circumcision is, for boys at least, if you're circumcised on the eighth day, it wasn't done by you, Right? There's no eight-year-old, eight-day-old boy circumcising himself. Like, that's not, it's going to be an adult doing that, right? In the same way now in the New Testament era, you don't circumcise yourselves. You don't take the flesh of your heart off yourself. You don't save yourself. You don't take your sin away yourself. It's done to you so that you can't boast. You, you rejoice. You thank. You worship. You recognize a new identity that's been given to you, done to you, rather than something you work for. So we, we say with Paul, done without hands. A circumcision done without work, done without moral effort, done without perceived self-righteousness and goodness and religion. Done by God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And, and we need this. We need the grace of God. We need him to, to circumcise us and specifically through Jesus Christ. And in one of those passages mentioned the phrase the circumcision of Christ or, um, or yeah, the circumcision of Christ as well to get at that idea. We need Jesus on the cross, the Son of God, to die for us. And, and it's interesting, uh, actually there, I, I was uh, telling a couple of the elders this morning, one of my big aha moments uh, this week personally for me was what follows here, never quite tied this up so neatly uh, at any point prior in my life, but what you actually see uh, in Christ when he's on the cross is you see a picture of a man, the God-man, who is cut off from God, circumcision language, cut off from his people, basically becoming uncircumcised in our sin so that we might become circumcised spiritually. And I'm, and I'm getting that language in part from Isaiah 53, 8, which is a prophecy of Christ beforehand. But look at this language, speaking about the suffering servant, the one who would come to suffer, the righteous for the unrighteous, God for sinners. It says, By oppression and judgment, he, the suffering servant, Jesus, was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the sins of my people? The idea of being cut off is circumcision language there, meaning Jesus is kind of being likened to the flesh of the foreskin or spiritually, connect the dots. What is that linked with? Our sin. So in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is actually the good news. Uh, actually, before that, I'll mention on the bottom here, going back to our, our text for today, you may have noticed this and even felt a little bit of burden by this or wonder. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. 
He has broken my covenant. So in the Old Testament, to not be circumcised was to not be an Israelite, was to be cut off from the people of God, was to not be saved in that Old Testament shadowy kind of sense and way. And so to say in Isaiah 53 that he was cut off is to say he bore the curse of Genesis 17, 14. He took on the curses of that conditional covenant for us that we might be brought in. That's the good news. That's the gospel. God himself bears the curse. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 in the New Testament, it says he became sin who knew no sin. In other words, he became uncircumcised even though he was perfectly circumcised spiritually and physically as a Jew. He became uncircumcised and he took on our sins that we might become flesh of the heart removed, circumcised, perfect in God's sight, sinners, even though we are, we are sinners. So the good news is just that. In Christ, this is our Savior. This is, what this is saying is we are not broken off. We are all uncircumcised in the heart, all of us. And, and if you want to, this is one mini definition to it, but going back to Deuteronomy 10, 16, to be uncircumcised in the heart is to be stubborn, is to be rebellious before God, is to not, to not get our way and be angry. It's to commit adultery of the heart. It is to murder. It's to, go our, it's to go our own way. It's to look down on others. It's to think we're righteous without God when in fact that's not the case. We need him. That's, it's to not worship. It's it's to self-deify. It's all of that and more. And all of us are there. We're uncircumcised. The call of the Bible is circumcise your heart. Deal with it. Which is condemnation for all those who can't circumcise the heart. Who can circumcise the heart? I mean, that, that, that's a, we could just plug that question in here, right? I mean, who can do it? It's not that far from when the Bible says, you know, uh, who, can, who knows the ways of the Lord? Who can, who can ascend to God? Who can truly circumcise the heart and not be stubborn on his or her own strength? Has it ever been done? Who can not sin? Who can perfect the soul? This is, this, is, this is the type of language we have to apply. And in Christ, the good news is, even though we are uncircumcised, he became uncircumcised for us. He became stricken. He suffered injustice among criminals. He bled for us. He saved us. He was cut off for us and crucified so that our circumcision then now, again, just to summarize this, and on the left are, is language applied to salvation for the, for the New Testament Christian with, with, uh, with circumcision language to it. All this language of putting no confidence in the flesh or works made without hands, not by the law, it's all another way to say saved by grace, not by works. You guys don't have to go, you know, leave here today and start to talk about your salvation and circumcision language. <laughs> Most people don't do that. But you should know the Bible does. The, the, the Bible does this all over the place. The Bible calls us as sinners uncircumcised outcasts. And then it says God became that for us and was cut off, becoming like a foreskin of the flesh, taking on our sin so that we might be brought in and not suffer the the curse and the judgment of verse 14. Back in Genesis 17, that's an old covenant idea that's not here anymore, uh, at least in the way it was applied there, so that we might be brought in um, and, not, and not stricken and cast out. So, so this is what we have to do. And 
If we want to live a circumcised life, putting no confidence in the flesh, it's not about trying harder. I mean, this is about constantly looking at this man. It, it, it's, don't, when it says be circumcised, it's not go out and try harder. It's not what it's saying. It's saying glorying in this man, glorying in him, worshiping him, putting no confidence in yourself, putting all your chips in, all your eggs in the basket of him. If you do that, you're saved. If you do that, you're circumcised in the heart. If you do that, you're marked as a person of God and it will never wash off your soul because he's done it by his hands. You have not done it by yours. Do you see the grace in that? This is the invitation we get is, is glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in your flesh and be circumcised in, in that heart. And the, and the good news is, as we'll see here, this really is for all. The scope of circumcision, as we've been saying, is widened out in Christ. And we get a whisper of that here in the last five verses. Just a few comments on this, but let's read this first. Verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. All right, so what's going on here? Uh, in, in a couple words, surprising inclusion. Highlighted a couple of things here. But uh, another way we get a glimpse then that even back here in Genesis 17, that circumcision is for more than who would be future Israelites in the Old Testament and even into the New, is that Ishmael, Abraham's, Abraham's son, and unnamed slaves who were not from Abraham's household uh, were circumcised as well. They were brought in, but not originally uh, of, his, of his household. So, in other words, these are outsiders. They are not eventual participants in the line of promise. And so, if uh, you're just catching up to this, uh, Isaac, who is to be born later, is going to be the son of Abraham, who the promise is going to come through, who's going to uh, serve as the line of Israel, the eventual line of Christ, not Ishmael. We'll come back to that. Chris Thompson actually talked about this a little bit last week in his sermon. It'll come up again. We'll talk about that more uh, later, but um, no time today. What I want you to see, though, is Ishmael is not the guy. It's, not, it's his son, but not really the line. It's, it's not, he's an outsider. He's an outcast. He's He's not the guy God's going to bring the promise through. God's been clear on that already in the story. Uh, it's, it's going to be Isaac in, instead. And then the slaves as well, outsiders. And so it's really quite amazing. This is easier to read over, but I think this is actually one of the more theologically significant things that you'll read in the whole book. I think that's an overstatement. It's one of the more theologically significant things that you'll read about in Genesis for God to make such exclusive statements about being in and out in regards to circumcision, it would have been easy for these, these guys, these bystanders, to feel on the outside. And in some ways in the Old Testament, that does happen for, uh, you know, with eventual non-Israelites. And there's a reason for that, another sermon. Can't go there today. But even here, though, 
you see, you don't, they didn't have to wait. In one sense, they didn't have to wait entirely for that time where, you know, in the Old Testament, they're longing for a better time of inclusion for outsiders where God would not separate anymore, where there wouldn't be this Israel, non-Israelite ethnic deal, but there'd be inclusion. Uh, but even here, we see a glimpse. God is already including the unlikely, and that's the theme I want you to be careful to see. God is including the unlikely. There's, there's a, a surprising nature to who is being circumcised uh, here, inclusive love. And, and the good news is, he won't stop all the way until we get to Christ, which, which means this is good news for us as well. If you're not Jewish today, uh, most of us in the room, uh, if you're a woman who couldn't be circumcised in the Old Covenant, who was kind of aligned with the men who were but who, who couldn't be, and, and, and aside from all of that, regardless, spiritually speaking, this is all of us. Good news. You know, we, we are, the point is, we are Ishmael. We are the unnamed slaves of, of verse 27. Uh, the, the Bible says that we have been bought with a price and, and circumcised along with the rest of God's people. 1 Peter 1 says you were purchased with the blood of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Again, bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is slave purchase language here. Slaves to sin, slaves to the devil, slaves to our going our own way, unable to get out, slaves to the tomb, dead in our sins. God walks along and looks at that tomb and looks at the slave enchained and says, that's mine, and adopts and purchases and resurrects and calls back from the dead. God does it all. And, and this, so he's applying the same language, actually, an idea, and this comes up elsewhere in the Old Testament too, but in Genesis 17, the idea here of being purchased, those bought with money from a foreigner, the point is that's us. And if we don't feel that, we won't feel the glories of, of the passage uh, as well. It's basically like, uh, you know, a, a loving parent to an unwanted foster child, you know, or, or a kind and generous master to a weak and weary slave. The gospel says God comes to those types, all of us, and puts his arm around us and says, come with me and be marked by my grace and love. Be marked, be sealed. You know, if, if we, this is kindness language, really. If, if we don't believe he's kind, you know, how will we be led to life change and uh, to Jesus in the first place? Romans 2, 4 <clears throat> says, I didn't put the uh, reference up there. That's Romans 2, 4. Uh, God's kindness leads us to repentance. Him being kind to us is what leads us to turn, to, to respond, to change. Note that it doesn't say God's law leads us to repentance. Does God's law ever lead you to true life change? Uh, is that, has that ever happened? I mean, truly, substantially, from the heart. And regardless, does the Bible say that? The Bible doesn't say that God's law leads you to change. The Ten Commandments will not lead you to repentance. His kindness embodied through that man right there will. It will change. It's the only thing in the universe that has power to change your life and to resurrect you and me. It's it. It's the only thing. And so the call is, 
be, be changed by his kindness, be changed by basically what he's doing there is he's calling slaves, he's calling the dead, he's purchasing back people who were lost, he's finding the lost sheep. You know, it's applied Genesis 17 language. He's going out and circumcising the unlikely, spiritually speaking. He's saving the outcasts, people like, like me and you. So a, a few things here um, to just to start to wrap up. I think there are three things, and I, these are things I've said, but just to summarize, in terms of where do we go. The Bible says in so many words, you need to be circumcised to be saved. Not in a, uh, a physical way anymore, but you need to be spiritually circumcised. The, the bad news is you can't do it. You can't do it. So the question is, where are you going to go? And that's, whether you realize this or not or feel this or not, this is just the reality of, you know, uh, the, 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 this is the human kind of predicaments or where we're at as in some ways, spiritual people, but in all the wrong ways. When you hear that you have to be something, but you can't do it, do you still try harder, believing that you can? Or do you give up and lift your hands before the cross and say and, and beg for mercy? Because you, you only do one or two things there. I mean, I guess you can try to plug your ears and just say, I didn't hear that, I didn't hear that, but, you know, you all heard it, so you can't unhear it now. But, so, what are you going to do? You need to be circumcised in the heart, and you can't, how do you, I guess you can say, I'm going to try to do that. It's a metaphor. <laughs> you know, I'm going to try to be a good person. Or are you going to go to Christ and, and beg for mercy and lift your hands and be changed by his kindness? The Bible's clear. You need a circumcision made without hands, not your hands, not by what you do or think, not by abstaining from sin perfectly. It's, it's done by Christ. It's done by the one who became uncircumcised for us, who was cut off from God to the Father, cut off from the people of God, cut off from salvation. He became a foreskin on the cross. He bled for us so that we might be purchased, we might be washed, we might become uncircumcised and pure in our sins. It's only really one of two things you can do, and, and the question is, Christian or not here today, where are you going to go? After that, live as though you're circumcised. The order here is crucial. In other words, it's okay to look at something like this and say, well, what does it mean to live a circumcised life? We talked about that, the more important side. It's okay to say, well, stop sinning. As you face the one who circumcised your heart, if you just say stop sinning without plugging Jesus in, good luck. Just stop sinning. Turn. Turn away as you face the one who loved you and showed you kindness on the cross. Believe in him. Believe that you're alive in him. Believe that he's alive in you. Believe that your heart's different now. Like Ezekiel 36 says in the Old Testament, you've been given a new heart. You can believe that or not, and the, the degree to which you believe it is the degree to which you'll live as though you actually have one. You're different. And then third, again, this is for everyone. Um, and Genesis 17 teaches us this. You can't read Genesis 17 and linked up New Testament reality passages, the inclusion, and conclude otherwise. If you believe it to be true, this is for you. 
There's no such thing as being too far off for God, this passage tells us. His salvation, like circumcision in the Old Testament, is for slaves. It's for foreigners. It's for bastard children. It's for sinners. It's for you and me. Again, do you believe it? Your sin is not too big for God. If it was, there wouldn't be a verse in Genesis 17 that said he included the foreign slaves. He included Ishmael. But there is. And we are him. And we are, we are the slaves. We are the outcasts. And because that's happening there, the whisper of that just steamrolls ahead throughout biblical history to the cross where Jesus opens his arms the widest and says, I have died for all. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come buy without money. Eat, drink, it's free gift. I'm, be, I'm becoming an uncircumcised sinner so that you in God's eyes might be declared circumcised in the heart and marked with salvation and love forever. See, this is what God has done in the world. He's done it all for you. So let us cease our striving and receive the fact that we're declared righteous, declared saved, declared circumcised, declared a son or a daughter of God, declared adopted, declared alive, um, we haven't found it. We've been declared all those things by his amazing grace. So believe, 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 believe in the gospel today. And let's do that as we close here with a couple of songs. I'll pray first. <clears throat> God, thank you for uh, this passage, for the gospel really embedded in Genesis 17. Uh, these themes for us to read about and adore. Uh, things that are markedly similar and markedly different in the New Testament era, but that both tell us about Christ in different ways. The grace works contrast. Uh, the, the It's not about me similarity. Uh, the circumcision, spiritual and physical contrast, but also similarity. God, it's really all about you. It's helping to tell a story. Um, God, we are all, uh, we have flesh around our stony hearts. We have sin we have transgression. We have a, a rebellious tendency to go our own way and to live as though we're actually kind of okay without you. And we try to prove it. Um, but God, whatever our vice today, I listed a bunch earlier. We're bringing different stuff in the room. You died for all. You died for all of it. Praise be to God. Uh, you became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. You substituted yourself. You were cut off circumcision language from God. And so I pray, God, you help us to respond in joy and thankfulness uh, that wouldn't leave here burdened, uh, striving to become something on our own strength, but actually very free and rested and joyful because our God has looked kindly upon us, even though we are dead, even though we are slaves to sin, even though we are uncircumcised. And he said, come, eat, partake, live, Come away with me and, uh, and, and live forever. And so God, help us to respond now uh, in joy and thankfulness uh, and not out of religious obligation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.